Listener Production. Hi, I'm Nat Kringoudis. And I'm Cecilia Ramsdale. Welcome to The Wellness Collective, a podcast where we invite you to be part of our wellness community to share, learn and live better. If talking about relationships is something that's been on your mind of late, this episode we are talking with Dr. George Blair West and his daughter Javeni Blair West. And we talk about preventing divorce and unlocking the secrets to a healthy and lasting relationship. We talk about why not having a too long shopping list can be a disaster and why that might be something holding you back in finding a potential partner. We talk a lot about values and why they're so important in a relationship, what we can learn from arranged marriages and why detachment is so important. Of course, we talk about lots of other things in this next episode of The Wellness Collective. So, Nat, when you met Daddy Kay, did you go and then talk to your papa and, you know, have a little chat to him about whether you thought this was the one for you? (laughs) (laughs) You put me on the spot. Um, Full disclosure, no, because... um, (laughs) Because it's not something that you necessarily would have thought of doing. Knew my parents probably wouldn't be happy at the time. Oh. And what's interesting is we both had parents that weren't necessarily wrapped with the decision that we'd made. Oh, wow. How about that? Hmm. Well, um, my husband's Greek and I'm not. And um, so there was a cultural kind Mm -hmm. of difference. Um, Very traditional. They're first-generation immigrants. So they wanted him to have... A Greek wife. Yes, I wanted a Greek wife that was going to... Well, you've adopted the name. You kind of... Oh, oh, yes. You're on board then. Um, and I had come out of, and this is very stereotypical, and I know that they'd be totally mortified but and now, but at the time, mm. I'd come out of another relationship with another man who was of similar ethnicity. There you go. And so, and that didn't sort of end the best, but we were young. And so, mm-hmm. anyway, point is that there was kind of like the so perfect storm. So there was a back Well, the right. perfect, non- whatever you call that. Well, we've mess. got some incredible people mm. today that are going to talk to us about exactly that, about you know, dad and daughter and well, relationships. Well, it took me a while and- to work out that it was dad and daughter. <laughs> I did a lot of reasons. I was like, why have they got the same surname? But they're not married and I couldn't work it out. <laughs> um, then I was like, oh, no, no. Yeah, Seriously, yeah, yeah, yep, yep. That was very funny. Anyway, um, so thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the Wellness Collective, Dr. George and Jiveny Blair West. Hello. Hello. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. Now, all right, first things first, father and daughter collaborating. How did you decide on that to begin with? <laughs> well, I, I started writing this book about, um, I think it's up to eight years ago now, and I would talk to people about it because the books, in essence, it's about the really beginning phase of a relationship. There's lots of books written about relationships, and I'm a relationship therapist, so I kind of got that. But so often I was seeing that the relationship problems began well before people actually got married, the things that brought them undone. So I thought we need to write a book about this. We need to get people thinking much earlier about the things that will bring a relationship undone. To use one of Jib's phrases, you know, love is not enough in this space. And people think it is, but the things that they thought would not be a problem down the track became a problem. So anyway, I started writing this book. And I started talking about it with people and I gave a couple of short talks about it. And what I found was my generation, so I'm a, I'm a boomer, and then you've got Gen X, and then you've got Jiv, who's our, our millennial. 
And my generation and, and Gen X weren't really interested in the idea of choosing a partner. They still believe in what I call romantic destiny. Mm. And they thought you don't choose partners. This happens magically. You know, you stumble across each other, you find the one, and that carries you through. And I just got no traction. And then after I'd given a very short TED talk, I was speaking to a couple of millennials at the, at the end of the show. There was a Sarah Beck, who was a wonderful singer, and I just complimented her on her music. And she then started to ask me questions about what I'd spoken about, which is all about preventing divorce and what do you do and what sort of things do you look for? And then she had a friend of hers who was a 20-something, and then they said, and this blew me away, they said, hold on, can we write this down? Now, every other adult I'd spoken to didn't even have any interest in what I was suggesting. <laughs> they just said, well, it's all silly because you don't choose a partner. Your partner chooses you or romantic destiny does it for you. Anyway, in that moment, I realised two things. I realised that millennials really were interested in this stuff because they're two generations into a divorce-ready culture, as I call it. Yeah, right. Boomers, boomers we, we, we just really were on the tail end of, of, of that, of the beginning of divorce. Gen X were the first generation that had to deal with it. But millennials, they're really used to divorce now and they get this idea that the one doesn't carry you through. So the second thing I realised was I had a millennial in the family who was a dating coach and who could better speak to this audience than my own daughter? And she's written, uh, she started a couple of books, and I know she's a lovely writer. She's a great lyricist too as a singer. And so, yeah, she um, came on board and we got it done finally after, well, eight years now. And have you been working with me, what, last three, four? Three or four, yeah. yeah. Amazing. I love, love it. it. So something that you just touched on there, that this idea that, you know, I'm in Gen X, on the cusp of Gen X, Gen Y, but that's no. definitely, I had a lot of friends and I probably felt that way as well, that you'd figure out the person that you were going to spend your life with and you probably didn't look at the practical stuff necessarily as being as important before you got married. But this idea though that that practical stuff is really more important, it kind of harks back to the ye olden days of humanity, really, doesn't it? So did we just kind of lose track of that stuff in the last 100 years or so? What happened to us? Well, we've got to remember love marriages only began in the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. That was the first time people had enough money to actually go and get married without the support of their family, when people actually had a job. So what we think of as the backbone of of, of marriage, which is a love-based marriage, is an incredibly new phenomenon in the history of humanity. And, you know, it's very recent on the greater scale. And, of course, you know, what we're seeing is that that strategy hasn't worked very well when it comes to our divorce rate, which love marriages have ultimately brought us to the highest divorce rate of all time. And one of the things we want to clarify too is that it's not about just using our head to choose a partner. It is this integration of the head and the heart. And one of the interesting figures that we came across in writing this book is that we could potentially fall in love with 350,000 people if we were to meet everyone in the world, which is <laughs> never going to happen. But if we reduce that down, there's still like, it could be 100 people that you meet in your life. Well, yeah, if, you, if you're not going to interact with 99.9% .9 of them, that's still 350 people that you could potentially be happy with. And so it's about of those people that we can feel romantic feelings for and potentially fall in love with, who's going to be the best match for us in the life that we want to create? I love that because it is true. I mean, you know, you think about everybody's past and there are people that you've been attracted to. But yeah, I think often if we're truthful and we look at it, we probably on paper, they, they weren't going to match up to us and right. lifestyle and, you know, social status and jobs and all of those other things that actually 
have very big roles in our life. So then how do we work out the right mix of like mm. attraction and logic and I mean, it's <laughs> just then it's like, oh, oh gosh, <laughs> if I had thought all that through, I don't know that I would have ever got to where I am now. Would like, you have ever had a boyfriend? Bit, it would have well, been too maybe. hard. I don't know. Yeah. It's just, now well, it's one like, of the things that we're big on is not having too long a shopping list. As people often have a shopping list mm. that makes it impossible for them to find a partner. There's a couple of core things which maybe Jim could speak to a bit later on because she wrote, we divided the book up in different chapters. So some of them Jim wrote and she's the expert on and some that I wrote and you should get you to talk a bit later on about some of those core things that you must have but yes look at the end of the day we will fall in love with people that's a given right we don't have to worry too much about that but as Jim says we're looking for the ones of the people we could potentially fall in love with that we would have a healthier match with and that we don't have major red flags you know like one that we deal with all the time is the difference between people who want to have children and those who don't. Yep. Which isn't necessarily a red flag, though, I will say that. But no, it's a misalignment of your vision for the future, and that becomes an unresolvable question that a lot of millennials I see are struggling. Some are very clear they don't want kids, and some definitely do, and others are ambivalent. And interestingly, while we can be very different in personalities and very different in interests and still have a very happy relationship, we actually do have to have alignment in core values, like whether or not family is important to you. Mm -hmm. You mentioned other things before, like socioeconomic status, intelligence. They don't have to be perfectly aligned, but if you have somebody who's incredibly intelligent with somebody who failed school, there's going to be problems, right? And if you have somebody who's literally came from poverty who gets in a relationship with somebody who's very wealthy, there's going to be problems. And so one of the things we want to look at is the core alignment of values, and they're particularly things like What's your work-life balance look like? If you've got two workaholics together, that's fine because they can both come home at 8 o'clock at night. But if you've got one who wants a work-life balance and is going to be home by 5 to spend time with the kids or the dog and their partner's going to be out till 8 o'clock, you've got a potentially recurrent major problem. Mm. Wow. Which is very like what you were just talking about at the very beginning when initially... Like you said, when I met, we called Daddy K my husband because my mm. surname's Kringudis. Um, <laughs> and so why there was potentially those challenges to begin with was definitely he'd come from a potentially long line of arranged marriages. And, and right. that still goes on today in a lot of cultures where it may not be fully arranged, but it's very contrived. There's a, there's a setup. Yeah. Yeah. I dive deep into the research on arranged marriages because I just found it absolutely fascinating the more mm. and more I got into it. Because what you find is, yes, we all know they have the lowest divorce rates in the world, something like 10%. And, of course, people go, yeah, but that's their culture. They won't let them divorce, so it's not really a true measure of how happy they are. No, no, no. When they do the research where they measure the amount of love in the relationship over time, what they find is compared to love marriages, of course, in an arranged marriage, the love level is very low to start off with. But as they get the couples to rate this over time and they come back five years later, the level of love in the arranged marriage has now exceeded that in a love marriage, which is going down typically. And when you come back 10 years later, the level of love in the arranged marriage is double that of a love marriage. Now, this is, of course, on average, and it's not saying it's true of everybody, but that is just fascinating and got us wondering what's going on here. Mm. And what you see if you dive into that further is that these are couples who committed to the relationship and to caring for each other and to making it work. And then they develop the intimacy and from intimacy you develop trust and from that you develop the fullness of what we call 
the love. Yeah, of a that's amazing because you, it sort of feels like the opposite of you. You meet someone in a bar, they're gorgeous. You have a lustful, you know, couple of months together, and then you've decided that that's the only person for you. So you've assumed the intimacy and the trust and everything in the beginning, but you haven't built it. So yeah. And this comes back to one of the central themes of our book, which is building love instead of finding love. So many people go out looking for love, hoping that they'll just find it, like it'll be already baked. And so our book is really also helping people to learn how to build that love. In fact, the other part of, of this story is the arrange, the, sorry, the manufactured love research, which is just even more fascinating, the arranged marriage research, and teaches us some very powerful lessons. So manufactured love is when researchers bring people together and get them to do intimacy exercises. Yeah. And the part of these stories I really love is how these research guinea pigs ended up falling in love and getting married. And what you're seeing here is the fullness of really what can happen here and explains why doctors marry nurses, bosses marry secretaries. I'm sure in, you know, the, the broadcast industry. There's a lot. Yeah, people marrying everybody that is around them because what's happened is they've manufactured the intimacy, the vulnerability, the trust, which gives us the connection and then how successful a relationship will be will be a function of the level of commitment to making it work and the commitment to nurturing personal growth. And we'll come back to maybe talk about how we define love a bit later on. What about, what about like leading ladies and men? Like, you know, you think about when you see on-screen chemistry and then you hear later on they got together and yeah. you think, well, of course, because they put in this situation where they're supposed to pretend they're in lust and look, you know, genuine and all of a sudden they've just... It's happened. Hmm. Absolutely. That was how um, Angelina and Joy and Brad Pitt met. And, of course, that's exactly manufactured love. And when, when in that research they talk about actors who are required to do this, and, again, what they're doing is they're actually starting to release the neurohormones because, you know, these guys are brilliant at their ability to literally manufacture the emotional state, right? Mm. And that emotional state is a neurohormonal state. And when they start bringing that in, now they're really cementing that experience and they're dealing with forces that if they don't understand them, are bigger than they are. Yeah. And one of the other things we dive into in the, in the book uh, is about how attraction works. Speaking of that as well, I read somewhere, or maybe, hopefully I'm right here, um, <laughs> that there was somewhere that there was mention of the need to avoid nines and tens. I was like, do you mean like yeah. someone that's like gorgeous gorgeous, and got it all like uh, not equal to you, you mean? Yeah, and then you're like, is that what you're saying? And you said this before, like, you know, I guess it's someone you'd look at that you'd think, well, they're out of my league, but I'm going to have a crack anyway. Is that what you mean by, you know, a nine and ten? So to be super clear, we're not talking about physical attraction or just physical attraction. We're talking about the whole package of how you feel when it's kind of what a lot of people describe as chemistry or love at first sight or these intense feelings. I think chemistry of- is the best word for it because chemistry, the amount of chemical attraction captures the physical look and how you feel about them, yeah. Yeah, so those really intense feelings that we feel from the beginning with someone that can be a little bit dangerous. There's a few reasons for this, but one of the big ones that stands out is, and we've probably all had some sort of experience like this, where we 
meet someone who we feel instantly attracted to and then we go home and we start projecting a whole fantasy (laughs) onto them and we don't really know them. There's so many gaps to be filled in, which we do with our imagination. And then when the warning flags start to appear, we start to give them the benefit of the doubt. We overlook the warning signs. I, I used to joke with my patients that during the infatuation phase, they could say all sorts of things to their, you know, their loved one at that point, and they'll be forgiven. You know, they can say, look, you know, I was an axe murderer a little while back, and they'll go, look, you know, I know you're a changed person now. I love the person that you've become. Then. Yeah, that, that was then. And, and I also say for that exact same reason, I say that's the time, that infatuation phase, that honeymoon phase, that's the time to share your biggest secrets with a potential partner because if you hide them, you know, things like, having had a child to a previous partner, maybe having gone bankrupt. Secrets that if you don't share them with a potential lifelong partner, later down the track after the honeymoon period when they find out, they aren't going to be forgiving you. They're going to see you as having withheld that. So, yes, we have this interesting phase, but you know, going back to the nines and the tens, when you're in that phase of the nine and ten, you've got that intense experience that Jim's talking about. But on top of that, there is this sense that this attraction will carry us through and we don't have to worry too much about how compatible we are. And what you see is that that's one of the reasons why the relationships with the nines and tens typically fail because they're, they're expecting this magical force to get them through all sorts of problems, you know, and it just doesn't. In fact, there's a correlation showing that the more intense the attraction in the beginning, the higher rate of failure of the relationship down the track. online dating like how has that changed all of this because you know we're talking about you see someone you have that instant connection but then when you mentioned before having too much of a shopping list that I think so many people get caught up in online profiles where they're like they like running but they don't like dogs so that person's not for me like <laughs> how is you actually are revealing it, it all yeah. you're not even in there <laughs> like you said the infatuation stage and it's all out there yeah. so you get to be a bit like it, it, it creates a new level of fussiness and being picky. Mm. Mm. And especially when there's so much emphasis on the picture, like this swipe left or right model of things, it's really misleading because it also puts a lot of pressure on people to look good. And Mm. as we've been saying, it's not, you know, it's much more important, the whole package than just one aspect of it. you, you You don't marry a picture, you marry a person. And the premise here is when you're looking at an image that this is the starting point and it just is not the starting point. In the book, we interviewed a professional matchmaker in in, in Los Angeles. She charges fifteen thousand dollars just for three introductions. That sort of you know Gosh. level. And she does not allow people to see photographs beforehand. Mm. When I asked her why, she said it gets in the way of the process. Mm. Now think about that, because what happens is people start making a judgment around the picture instead of when you get to meet the person and you get the whole person and now you start to work out, you know, you see their quirky sense of humour. You see they've got a really interesting way of seeing the world. They've got this natural curiosity, things that pictures can't convey. Um, we did a great episode also with Andy Liu about online dating and mm. the one thing that I think stood out from that was that she said 
consider when you're looking at someone on online dating, like seeing someone in the supermarket or walking past them at the gym. It's just an initial encounter. You're not getting married just because you swiped <laughs> left or right. Um, and I think that's a really good way of looking at it. I think we've online dating and apps have taken it to a whole new interesting level. But if we just look at that as one encounter mm. that you've just seen somebody then that allows you, I think, to be able to bring it back into something that's a little bit more probably what is normal to us or ingrained in us. Can I share something? I met my husband after I had been talking to him on the phone and emailing him for weeks. Hadn't seen him, didn't know what he looked like. At all. No, didn't know. How did you first connect then? Uh, Because we worked in the same company, but he worked in a different city. So we used to talk on the phone for work. And then uh-huh. he was coming. You liked the sound of his voice. I did. And even today, 20 years later, when he leaves me a message on my phone, I'm like, oh, there he is. Oh, There's that's comfort nice. in his voice. Isn't that funny? And the first thing I thought when I saw him was, he's a lot taller than I thought he would be. <laughs> so, yeah, I can identify with that idea completely. And this is one great thing. Like I really suggest people, if you're using the apps, great, use it as a tool, but get off them as soon as possible. One great thing about Bumble now is that you can do voice memos. So I think there is so much more information in how someone sounds rather than a message that they've spent 15 minutes drafting. So using the voice memos to Mm. test that out before you meet them can also save some time. I I am constantly telling my patients who are single and dating, get face-to-face as quickly as possible because and, and get to a phone call quickly too because image texting, you can there's so little context that you can, again, as Jib said, you can be projecting onto them mm. all this stuff about how this is the one, you know, this is my future, this is my happiness. <laughs> and until then you speak to them and you go, my God, who is this person? <laughs> and, or you sit down with them and, and you want to be out of there within, within three minutes. You know, it, it's a matter of moving to that audio connection and then the face-to-face connection really quickly. And I think the people who spend more time before they get to that get more burnt out because they get their hopes up further Mm. to have them disappointed. And burnout with these apps is the biggest problem I see. They are a really useful tool. I use them. But I I tell my patients to go and do this. I don't use them. Well, Well, he might just be telling you something right now. Don't tell I'm just doing it for work research, darling. It's uh, no no other reason. No, just seeing what the millennials are up to. That's funny. I have another question which I really liked that I saw in your book and you talk a lot about detachment and I want to understand and discuss why is it so important because you probably don't think, oh, it's so important to be detached in my relationship, but let's discuss that. Detachment, I'm really glad you raised this one. It's a really complex issue, detachment, but it's a really central one as well. Let's come at it from the other angle. I think we all know what it's like to be in a relationship, which and it can happen at different levels early on or, or later on, where you've got somebody who is overly attached, overly needy. What happens when people are really needy is they're, they're sending the message, I am only going to be happy through you mm-hmm. and I need you to be happy. And we all are ultimately repelled by that. <laughs> we're all struggling to make ourselves happy. We don't want to take the responsibility for making somebody else happy, right? Yeah, too needy. So think of that as the other end of the spectrum. Detachment is not about being too cool for school. Jim wrote a lovely section about how that doesn't help either when you're, when you're completely detached. And But the detachment I'm talking about in the book 
because it's married to determination. You kind of put those two things together. We've got to be determined to have a healthy relationship. We've got to be detached from the how, the when, and even the who it's going to be. So what I mean by detachment is that you're, you're focused on where you want to get to, you're committed to that, you're committed to giving the relationship the best shot, but you're also prepared to let it go if you don't make the match. You're, you're here to work out whether there is a match to be made, not to attach. And that requires a degree of detachment. And I know I, I, I've got a couple I'm working with at the moment. And in this case, it's, it's not always the female, but in this case, you know, she is the one who is really saying, but look, I'm committed. And he's still saying, well, I'm not sure. And I'm saying, look, unfortunately, you've got to work at the level of the one who is the mm. least attached here because you've got to work out whether you can make the match. And one person is not enough to make a match. So detachment in, in its essence is about being a bit philosophical about it, recognising this, yes, we're attracted, but now we've got to see if we can make the match. And and they're the sort of things, we've, some of the things we've touched on, you know, do we have vision alignment? Do we have core value alignment? We can be different, as I said, in many other ways, but that's the sort of key. So detachment reminds us to not be too clingy, not be too needy, not to have to hear from them 10 times a day in a text message <laughs> and to just step back and to a certain extent let the relationship come to us. Not show them the mood board for your wedding on your second date. <laughs> <laughs> Not on the first date, anyway. That's hilarious. (laughs) This is the dress I've got picked out, and I'm going to have four babies. I did the opposite on our third date. Yeah, I said, "Oh my!" It was literally our third date. Mm. I said to my husband, "Now, I said, listen, all men cheat. So when you do that." You just need to let me know and I'll work out whether I want to stay with you and make it work or not. I said that. Oh, now, here gosh. the funny thing is, if you know my husband, yeah, he would ordinarily run. Like, I didn't know him that well. Mm. But if now knowing him, I must be special because truly he would run from that if someone said that to him <laughs> in any normal circumstance. But I was like so fed up with men at that point. I was like, stuff this. Yeah, how serious are you? lay it all out on the third date and we'll just see. I got, um, my, you know, I was ready to, I was ready to settle down. I think that's the other thing I said to mm. him. I'm ready to settle down. I don't want to muck around anymore. If you don't, if you want to do that, that's okay. Yeah. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, Nat, can I say that the cool thing about doing that Putting it out there and seeing how the other person reacts is really, really important. So often I see people who are playing their cards close to their chest. They don't want to be really seen because they're worried that if this other person sees me, they're not going to like who I really am deep down. You know, the most common human belief, something like 58% of the population carry the belief, I am not good enough. So when you are in this dating phase, most people are trying to be too well behaved and trying to hide themselves because they think it's a problem. So... Elaine Dubaton talks about this. He says, look, we're all crazy. You just should let your crazy out early on so the <laughs> yep. other person can work out whether their crazy works with your crazy. And, you know, that's a useful idea. We've got to put it out there. And then we watch to see how they react. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Absolutely. I, I remember having a, a friend when I was a teenager and I adored him, but I used to, I used to try and, you know, do things to push just to see how far I could push him. And there wasn't even relationship necessarily. <laughs> Maybe yeah, I was thinking cheeky. about it could have. Could have gone into a relationship, but I had to check whether he could have. Oh God, that's so, so funny, funny, isn't it? You, you weren't just playing with your with your superpower, were yeah. you? And just seeing how much you could get him to do what you wanted. Maybe I was. I don't know. Hey, um, <laughs> let's just quickly before we let you go, talk about you know what makes a good relationship and how. I think some people don't realise that relationships have to evolve. I mean, you touched on that before when you were talking about 
arranged marriages and so on and how they grow. But I remember reading something not long ago that talked about how if you have been married for a while and potentially if you've got kids and all of a sudden your relationship becomes a bit more brother and sister <laughs> than it does it husband and wife because you go through phases. Yeah, because you, you rely upon each other on a day-to-day basis and it's more of a friendship that you need to keep things going. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, Esther Perel, of course, has written a lot about mm. this, about how the very things that make up a long-term stable relationship are the opposite of what makes for a hot sexual connection. And so you have this inevitable evolution in a relationship to this companionship and this teamness if it's working well. So maybe I just want to speak a little about love because that answers your question. Mm -hmm. And then, Jim, maybe you could talk about some of the key elements of, of, of a relationship to finish up. One of the things that I realised I had to work out years ago was how to redefine love for my patients because so often I would hear them say they describe a really horrible relationship with whether it's a parent or a partner and then at the end of it they'd say, but I know they love me in their own special way. And I'm sitting there going, no, no, this is an abusive relationship. There is no love here. So I really had to come up with a different way of conceptualising love that worked in the therapeutic context where we could look at that and go, is there love here, yes or no? And after some years of looking at this, I read everything I could about love and most, most of the romantics who wrote about love give us nothing of value because they see it as this wonderful emotional state, which of course passes. But what I've come to over the years is this clinical definition, which is a working definition, which is something that I think underpins what we call true love, which is a long-term relationship, which has got two parts to it. And that is that you have to accept your partner as they are. This is about loving them warts and all. And that is the feeling that I think those of us who've been lucky enough to be in a long-term relationship where we are loved, that's the feeling of being loved. That's when you know your partner cares about you, even though they know that you've got a whole range of problems. Mm. They know you're crazy. Mm. And then the second part of it is a commitment to nurturing personal growth in yourself and the other person. So it's really easy when you think of those two aspects of true love to work out whether you're in a loving relationship. I can say to people, does your partner nurture your personal growth? Which means they have to empathically connect and know what it is that will help you grow, right? It's not, you know, so many parents will impose on the children that they go and play football or basketball or netball because they love it, but they don't actually check to see if that's what their kid wants to do. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I mean by nurturing another person's personal growth. So in terms of what underpins a long-term relationship, it's that accepting somebody as they are and then committing to nurture their personal growth, irrespective of how you feel. Because any parent knows that you can have a grumpy, crying four-year-old child and the loving behaviour is to not respond to the feeling. It is to get them undressed, get them in their pyjamas and get them to bed if you've been out for a late night and not to buy in to their behaviour. That's what love looks like. Mm. It's actually often behaving. Not only is it's not even about feelings, it's about not even responding to the feelings that you might be having and nurturing that other person in that moment. So this is where we get to this idea that love isn't a feeling, it's something that's built. And one thing I'll just add to that accepting, this was a hard lesson that you really elucidated to me growing up Mm. when I was dating, is that we can't fall in love with potential. So many people when they're Mm. dating, they see the potential of the person they're dating and they see the warning signs and the flaws, 
But, but by the, potential, you mean what they're projecting onto them rather than the other person's on. true potential. Yeah, exactly. Because sometimes people do work out people's true potential and they do nurture that and they go on to bring that out in them, which is really cool too. But mm-hmm. I think you're talking here about project when they project onto them the promise that they're going to make me happy. Yeah, and yeah. hoping that one day their partner will change even though you've been with them for two years and they still haven't changed and they're not showing any evidence of really feeling like they need to change. Which brings me to, so we've talked about aligned vision and values. We've talked about the redefining love, which bleeds into the next one, which is finding a partner who values growth. Because if only one of you is committed to growing, then at some point you're going to grow apart. And so there is a difference to between someone who walks the talk and who just talks the talk, of course. Mm. So I love your podcast is obviously all about personal growth. So you'd have a lot of people in here who are committed to that and they need a partner who can meet them on that level too and who actually walks the talk. That It is one of the unresolvable problems that I will work with with a couple or often for the reason we're talking about, half a couple. One of them will come in and want to see me because I'm a psychotherapist. I don't do general psychiatry. I generally am helping people work out shit and helping them to grow, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I do a lot of trauma therapy. So I will have people in front of me who really want to work this stuff out. They want to be a better person. They want to understand what they came here to be. And they've got a partner who not only isn't interested in doing that themselves, doesn't even want to talk about it. And and personal growth is such a profound, essential part of who we are that to have a partner who just isn't interested, that's right up there with insurmountable potential problems. You can work this out while you're dating. You don't have to be married for 10 years to work this shit out. But what if it's too late? What if you are married for 10 years and you've decided that you want to do some personal growth and then, you know, your other half says, oh, that sounds like woo-woo. I don't want anything to do with that. Do you that, keep that, on that, growing? That's a, sorry, <laughs> Cecilia, but that's literally another book. Our book, <laughs> all about, our book is all about how to make the biggest decision of your life, hence the title. You're right? going to get back in time. It, it's really all about prevention. It's all about the first step. There are lots of books out there on what to do when you find yourself in an unhappy relationship, but there's almost nothing written about this process of how we end up with people. And so our book is really about giving people the best possible head start because relationships are tough. You don't have all the problems you're kind of alluding to there, but our book is really just about getting the first bit right. Love it. Well, the book is called How to Make the Biggest Decision of Your Life, Unlocking the Secrets to a Healthy, Lasting Relationship. Um, I've loved chatting with you both today. Thank you so much for joining us. I would encourage anyone to go and look up both uh, Dr. George and Giovanni in their work that they're mm-hmm. doing. And if they've, you know, I'm sure that, I'm sure you've got lots of other resources and ways that people can work with you. So thank Actually, you. There's, there's the TED talk that I gave, which people might want to um, have a look at. It kind of summarises some of the points in uh-huh. it. Awesome. And for those who are online dating, I've got a free guide to making the most of your dating profile. So a lot of people get stuck with where to start and you can get that from my website too. Excellent. Cool. I want awesome. to check that out. A awesome. Side hustle. No, no. <laughs> I've got time or interest in a side hustle, frankly. Oh, Thanks dear. for joining us we'll on the Wellness Collective today. Thank you so much. Bye. See you. I feel like... Maybe I got some things right. Maybe I got some things I need to do. <laughs> Which is always good. 
I feel no, I do. I actually was really enjoying. Yeah, I um, know. I had a whole bunch more questions. Well, we maybe we need to, to get them back again. He oh. told he, we got to wait for the next book. Clearly, <laughs> I know because I can't go back in time twenty years to have yes. a look at what's in that book. It was so funny. Make the though. biggest decision of my life because I already made it. It I truly think. was hilarious. Yes, well, that's true. But I really could not work out for the life of me how they had the same surname. It, it took me ages to work out because I kept trying to Google. It was really funny. And I was like, <laughs> how have they got the same surname when they're married to different people? I love I it when you fess up to things that I'm like. Oh. That was the first thing that stood out to no, me. No, well, it didn't to me. So clearly, you know, we're all different. We Our brains are. work a bit differently. That's right. um, but this has been an awesome episode of The Wellness Collective. If you've liked what you've heard, feel free to share it on with somebody. Yes, Pass do. the love on. Maybe you know someone who's struggling in their relationship. And it is, I mean, it's always hard work. It's, it's Or um, looking for the right person. I mean, you yes. know, I, I wish... I'd known that there was a bit of a list that you could go through and have a look because wow. it's yeah. really hard. Yeah. And, but I think the one thing that I really wanted to talk to them about before we go was this idea that, yes, you can't change people, but everyone has good days and bad days. Mm. And I think that's one thing about relationships long-term that you have to just realise that, you know, when you're having a bad day, that person's holding you up and when mm. you're having a good day, maybe you're holding them up and that's yeah, just definitely. the ebbs and flows. It's like you and I. We're in oh, a relationship, yes. aren't oh, we? Oh, yes, we are. We're like a married couple oh, sometimes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, go on. If you want to leave us a message, what do we need to do? No, I was just going to say we would love to see where you've listened to this episode. Feel free to take a screenshot, share mm-hmm. it with us, the Wellness Collective podcast on Instagram. That would be awesome. And I think uh, I think it's time to say goodbye for today. I think so. But anyway, we hope this has left you feeling a little bit happier. Healthier. And better. See you next time. And we will. Bye. Bye.